This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today I'm joined with the CEO of Trend, Ramon, my co-host. And we have a very special guest with us as well, Jason Wong, who's the managing partner at Wong House Ventures, a fast-growing venture studio helping brands in the consumer space. Super excited to have Jason on the podcast over here. He's going to be sharing his knowledge on brand building, influencer marketing, manufacturing, logistics, and more. Jason is a, an expert in the consumer space, so um, it's going to be great to, to dive into all of these topics. But before we go ahead and, and jump in, Jason, I'll go ahead and pass the mic over to you if you want to give a quick little intro about yourself and uh, tell us a little bit more about what you do. Yeah, thanks, Jay, for having me, and thanks, Ramon, for being a co-host. My name is Jason Wong. I'm the founder of Wong House, and I also run a consumer brand called Dill Beauty. You guys probably see me or know me for my brand-building framework I teach at Shopify. My background and my strong suit is in supply chain logistics, so really good at operations and making sure that the, the wheels are running for a consumer brand. That's really my main specialty. Awesome. That's cool. And I saw, um, you know, while I was kind of reading up on you to, to kind of put together some topics for the podcast, I saw that you were actually a, a Tumblr influencer um, during your high school career. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about, uh, you know, kind of how you got your career start um, and how you really started to learn about the, the consumer space um, and, and developing products and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it was an interesting time because this was 2014, 2013, 2014, when, you know, Influencer wasn't really a big popular thing. Like, yeah, sure, you got, like, the famous about people from YouTube making funny videos, but no one was really an influencer. There was no PR boxes for, for creators. People didn't analyze analytics or engagement. And so it was kind of a wild west still. It, it, like no one really knew what to do. Everyone's trying to figure it out. But I knew that I didn't want to just do sponsored posts and, you know, make money from getting paid per click for the rest of my life or at least for the next near term of my career. And so I'm like, okay, if businesses are paying me to market the product, why can't I also be the business? And and so I started emulating the the brands that were paying me. So like if there was a clothing brand that was paying me, I'm like, you know what, I'll start a clothing brand. Um, if there's a phone case store that was paying me, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll start a phone case brand. And so that was like the two biggest like clients that I had. So like those were the two first stores I had. Um, and and it, it was honestly a really good learning experience because it's very obvious looking back now that e-commerce and running an influencer account is drastically different. Uh, the the logistics of doing so is extremely different. But it was good to jump into the deep end of the water, you know. No, no guidance, no course, like no one on YouTube is teaching you how to do any of this. You just go in and, and try to figure it out yourself. So the, I'll say to end off on the Tumblr side, so the good part was having that great audience allowed me to get to market faster without spending any money. Nowadays, in order for you to validate a product or an idea, you have to spend a lot of money on Facebook. You know, you get to spend at least a thousand, two thousand dollars on Facebook or at least through influencer marketing. Um, on your own, if you're lucky, you can you can get them to post without paying money, but it's got to take a lot more time. And for me, because I was the influencer, I was able to push my products out almost instantaneously 
test new ideas, uh, le leverage my network of influencers. You know, hey, I'll, I'll share your post, you share my post. And, and that's how I was able to like extend my reach by tens of millions of people. I'm curious, uh, based, based on that experience, if, if that has shaped, you know, how you build brands in the sense of like, do you now look at, you know, the potential of a community first before you even look into the product? And do you, have you even thought or actually potentially acquire communities or something and then, you know, build brands off of that? Or do you still follow, say, the same framework that worked for you or even still utilize the audiences that you have been able to build? I think community is everything. That's absolutely shaped the way that I approach building an e-commerce brand. It's that I, I'm a lot more careful in how I go into a category. So for example, going to the beauty category, before I even started the last brand, obviously like my first instinct was to solve a problem, but my second instinct was, is there, is there actually a demand? Is there actually a bucket of people that care about this? Like, yeah, I know it's selling right now. It's in, it's in shelves, it's in drugstores and not, but is there actually a bucket of people on social media that I can really anger onto and leverage them to get me like a head start? And so understanding that it allowed me to de-risk the, the risk exposure for sure. Because if you go into it with just a great product, yeah, you know, your product might be great, your ads might be great, but if there's not a audience that you can identify that you can speak to, you're you're gonna make really bad ad copy first and foremost because you don't know who you're talking to. Number two is like you're gonna have a really hard time finding ways to make creative because there's no people that you think will fit within your audience bucket. Going back to your first point, you don't know who you're selling to. So I think knowing what the product I want to make was the first thing, knowing who I want to sell to exactly and where they're located at was the second thing, which really helped me understand their language, the way that they communicate, the way that they like to receive information. Are they the type to read long-form content? Do they like really short, fast-paced, creative? Knowing who I'm selling to in the community it, it meant everything. It, it shaped everything else. That's really cool. And thanks for diving into that. I'd be really curious to kind of learn a little bit more, especially about step two over there, where you mentioned, you know, figuring out who the audience is and, and how to sell to them. If you can, could you share a little bit of maybe what your process is when kind of working on those brands to figure out like, how do you figure out like who that audience is? And what are some of the things that tools and resources that you maybe use to figure out how they talk, what they do and, and those kinds of things? In terms of observation and identifying the audience, as manual as it gets, we're still very old school in that regards. There's no tools or data analytic platform that we felt like was sufficient because, you know, in theory, it sounds nice. You're like, hey, let me give you this machine learning out, like platform, some information on who we think our audience is, spit out every result of all the people you think it is. And in theory, that works fine because it's a formula and something that's supposed to be very methodical, but it's not. There's so many different types of people that accounts or, or I mean, algorithms think that they fit into a particular category, but they're very different in their regards because they're fundamentally not the same. But machines are like, oh, you know what? They post travel pictures. Let me just group travel pictures influencers into one bucket. You know, so we've never really had a good result using machines or any tools. So I'll start off with that. Number two was that for me to find like who really uses my audience, uh, uses my product, what I do is I try to look at competitors in the space and I'll come through their fault, like their following I'll come through their, the people that comment. The, the commenters are actually the, the most important ones because they're the most highly active and engaged people 
people that comment on brand accounts typically mean that they care pretty much. No one ever comments on brand account unless you care. But so once you find like a few, like I would say like five or six people that fit within that criteria, which five or six people isn't too hard to find if you're doing it manually. We're like, we're not asking you to find 25,000 people. So once you find five or six people, what you can do on Instagram in particular is to leverage their, their algorithm, which is, I guess, the only tool I'll use, nothing external. But if you click the down arrow icon next to the follow button on their Instagram profile, they'll actually show up the recommended profiles for you based on their assessment of who's related to your influencer. Obviously, they're going to show you 10 people, and not all 10 people will be qualifying, but you can at least find three or four. So you find one first person that will give you three other people that Instagram thinks they might be slightly similar to, and that's how you start building out your influencer list. So every time that we've built an influencer list, we try to hit like 50 to 100. That's like our initial batch size for anything. And I can easily build that list just by the method I just told you in maybe 20 minutes. It's not that hard. And 20 minutes of very high quality leads, not 20 minutes of like a machine like output, you know? Yeah, you're basically piggybacking off of, you know, Instagram's own algorithm and you can't beat that really. Yeah, uh, like their algorithm really looks into a few factors. One is uh, post similarity. So are they like similar in how they make content? Number two is the audience composition. So what kind of audience do they have? Is it largely this type of bucket? Is the Rashi Dakota bucket? Which you can't really see right off the bat. But if you get like similar content from an influencer, you can kind of make the assumption that their audience will quite be quite similar. Number three is audience affinity. Like, are these people particularly interested in this product or are they not? And then the other way that I look for influencers or influencers from one another is to look at their mutuals and like look at who's commenting on their pictures. So like influencer, here's a tip I'll give you to find like better influencers for your brand. If you find like an influencer that you really like to work with, look at who they're following, like who their mutuals are. Because influencers grow by cross-promotion of other influencers, meaning that you're able to find the people that they follow and they follow each other back. You're able to find influencers that may have audience overlap because they promote each other. And here's the thing, the audience overlap is actually a good thing. You know, you actually want people that are following all these people you're targeting. Because have you ever bought a product if one influencer promoted it? But what if nine of the influencers that you're following on your Instagram feeds posting the same exact thing. If one influencer posts it, it's like, oh yeah, you know what, it's whatever, it's just a sponsored post. If non-influencer posts about it, even though we know it's a sponsored post, instinctually people are like, oh wow, there's a popular demand. Like there's nine people on my feed that I'm literally seeing, everyone's talking about something. There's a hype around it. So like obviously it was manufactured, it's as artificial as it gets because I just told you how to do it. But consumers, they kind of just shuts off once they see like, there's a form of people screaming the same thing. They're like, oh, wow, I want to get in on it. It's FOMO. And, and that's really the best hack. It's, it's manual. Like, it sucks. You're going to put time into it, but it's high quality. That's, that's a great strategy over there. And, and to your point, I mean, it really doesn't take that many people. You said nine people posting about the same thing. And, um, you know, I definitely, as a consumer myself, can definitely feel that um, when I see a product that's being posted about a bunch of times, um, you feel like you want to purchase it. So, you know, I know you started some, you've worked on some brands, uh, Doe Lashes, which you talked about. You also worked on um, 50 as well. And now you're doing, you're also working on Wong House, which you've kind of started as your, uh, as what we kind of talked about at the beginning of the podcast. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about um, House and what you kind of do over there and some of the things that you're working on? Yeah, so the premise of House was a holdings company. It's funny, and you're probably going to laugh at this, is that I, I made that company purely just so I can start more companies. <laughs> I get really bored easily. My mom said I have this symptom called a three-minute hotness. It actually makes more sense in, in Chinese. It's kind of like a pro-her bullshit, but it's like... I get really into something and then I'll hop on to the next thing. So I can never really stay on doing one thing forever. Like I, I will not be able to sit still. And so I realized that I, re- I want to work on a lot of businesses at the same time. I don't want to just stay like doing one single thing. So I create Wong House as a holdings company to manage all the brands that I want to create, all the projects, all the investments, all the partnerships. And I built a, like a centralized core strategy team that is able to help me manage all these businesses. So if I were to build six brands, instead of building teams for six brands, I'll build one single team that's able to effectively manage six brands. And that's what we've been doing for the past few years is trying to originate our own ideas and projects, create our own products, and then build the team around uh, managing those using the same framework. What people don't realize is that managing one brand and managing six brands actually doesn't mean that it's six times as hard as long as you're able to follow the same framework and systems. When you look at a brand, it's the storefront, it's the marketing, it's the creative, and that's it. Operation is virtually always the same in the back end. Like the way that we cook our food in the kitchen, in theory, the same kitchen can cook six types of cuisine. Really, that's how it is in the restaurant industry. Look at cloud kitchens, right? So... With that theory in mind, I had in 2015, I started Wong House, and ever since then, just been building a lot of brands in there, growing it, getting them acquired, rinse and repeat. That's kind of the whole idea behind Wong House. It's purely a holdings company. Is there a specific vertical that you guys are going after? Or, you know, I'm sure you love all industries. I mean, you and I sound really familiar. I'm the same way. I'm always looking and researching industries I have no clue about because that's what fascinates me, right? It's that exploration phase, that stage where I'm ignorant about this, the space or the industry. So I'm curious, are you going after specific industries or, or is it, you know, whatever you just happen to find interesting at that time? I try to go for products that I feel like solve solutions or, I mean, solves problems. That's the first thing I go for rather than looking for specific categories. So the the misconception that people have is that they think founders are up at night doing market research, you know, looking at trends on Google, and then they make a product for it. But it's actually doing the opposite. You find the product that you want to create because there's a particular solution that you, you feel like you're very, you want to target. And then you start doing market research to validate the idea. And if you're able to validate the idea from the market research, then you go forward for it. So it's never like market research and then try to find products because you'll never be able to find a product. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. But what if we find, you know, the smallest thing first, like the fair specific item, or at least the category of item within that small niche category. And then you start looking for like the bigger picture. Is this market actually right for it? So yeah, that's kind of how I do it. Nice. That's cool. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast, that's T-R-E-N-D 
bit.io slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. So, you know, I know you talked about influencer marketing being one of the things that you work on with your brands as well. What are some of the other things that um, you really focus in on marketing or think are, are some of the key things that other brands should be focusing on that can really kind of drive the needle? I think they absolutely need to care more about retention. Retention it refers to the, the marketing that gets the people who have either engaged with your site or were your customers. Like these are a warm audience. Retention is especially so much more important now that with uh, for 14.5, you can't really track people anymore. So your Facebook ads analytics are going to be less effective. So, you know, we were early on in adapting this approach last year. We focused most of our effort towards retention instead of acquisition. So when brands were, like, trying really hard to scale and acquire customers at all costs, they weren't really retaining them. They, they didn't put that much effort into it. We actually shifted a lot of focus into our SMS, email, uh, our loyalty program, our on-site experience. We even do like mail cards. Like we do postcards. Like we do a lot of stuff to retain customers and also visitors. Like if you have visited our website, we're going to put you in a place where we can reach you again and we're going to do it effectively. And with that being our core focus, we're able to bring up our returning customer to like 35%, which is great because it means that we actually have a lot less pressure to acquire more customers by getting higher quality customers. And I think that's one of the things that consumer brands need to worry a lot about, especially with how much more expensive it is to acquire customers. It's going to get more expensive from here. Facebook only has a limited amount of ad inventory. They're going to keep increasing your price in order to meet the demand. It's really natural economics, right? So if you're just starting out, like if you're a founder listening to this and you're just starting out, yes, you can still acquire customers on social media, on paid channel. But like your goal is to retain every customer and person that visit your website and making sure that you can stretch their lifetime value or that you can increase the chance of them coming back so you don't have to spend money acquiring them all over again. That's how you survive. Otherwise, you won't make it. For sure. That's really helpful over there. So I know you also have, um, you know, we haven't even jumped in this. Uh, you've got your Shopify course as well that's talking about manufacturing, logistics, and fulfillment. What can you kind of share with us from your experiences and, and what you've put together with your Shopify course? I mean, it, it was honestly like first and foremost, being on Shopify and being invited to like teach a Shopify was great. It's honestly an honor because that was the first platform I got on. So when they asked me to teach there, I was like, holy shit, that's great. Kind of made it. I think the experience of doing that in a sense was rewarding because we don't get paid. Like for Shopify instructor, we do it out of passion because we want to teach. So we don't get paid for it. And just seeing the responses that we've gone from, at least the feedback on my course from the people that reached out to me was really good because they're like, wow, like I had never knew about this. Like no one on YouTube was teaching this. Everyone's trying to sell me something. But like you're actually telling me exactly what to do. And it's funny because I have, like, so on Shopify, I teach the specific topic of manufacturing and logistics. So I'm teaching people how to make products overseas. I have a supply chain logistics like company. Like I, that's the service that I also have. I have a B2B business where I help founders create their products. But here I am teaching a class on exactly how you can do it too by yourself. Like I'm literally cannibalizing my own business and teaching you how to do it. But in a way, I feel like it's good that I do that because the more educated and more informed that you have on a specific topic, you can make, the, you can make your own choice on, hey, you know what? I know what, what's going on, 
but I feel like I can hire someone else to do this so that I can focus on building my business. Or you're like, hey, actually, I can't really afford to hire an agency. I'm going to do it myself. And then down the line, I can hire, I can hire the company to do it for me. So like, I don't ever want to get someone to come to me to use my strategies because I'm withholding information to enable them to do something. Like They just have no clue how to do it. I actually want them to come to me actually being really informed on how the whole process works. Especially with logistics and supply chain, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about like the the shift storms of you know ships getting stuck, you know things not moving right. Like there's a bunch of delays now with all these holidays. As a normal consumer, you may not understand that, the implications of all that, but if you're informed, you understand that sometimes things are out of our control. So if you ever pay me for a service, you're more understandable. So that Shopify course, being able to offer all that knowledge for free to a mass audience, I think made the industry a little bit better. Just a tap it because I'm not famous, I'm not very influential, but just a tap it, I was able to at least get the people that took my class to understand how operation really works. So if anyone ever needs to make their own product, they know how to do it without being forced to pay tens of thousands of dollars to sourcing companies. Yeah, I'm sure it's also made it much easier for you to work with your clients too now that they're more educated we experience the same thing over here it removes a a huge barrier from your communication process with your clients i'm curious though you know how did that is there a backstory how did that opportunity come about creating that course did they that shopify just reached out to you and because i know of doe lashes from tiktok which is something i also want to dive into and is is doe lashes ran on shopify yeah yep got it so how did the opportunity come about to work with Shopify? Oh, they just reached out to me. It was an email. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That must have been a good day and a good email to get. So I think that's a great segue into the story about behind Doe Lashes. So I, I heard of Doe Lashes from, I've seen it on TikTok. So I'm curious on what your experience has been on, on leveraging TikTok as an influencer platform, say compared to Instagram and how has you know that played a part into the growth of Doe Lashes? TikTok was honestly a pivot point, to be completely honest. We were struggling with pay acquisition on Facebook early on last year. I mean, we never really excel on pay acquisition on Facebook. Being fully transparent, I'll tell you why. On Facebook, there's a particular AOV that really allows you to be comfortable in scaling. And that price point tends to be around 60 to $80 as an AOV because you at least have that buffer room to acquire customers and still be profitable. Our AOV is $43. Like, we were never really working with a lot of room. So, if anything, pay acquisition was just to get us customers at a break-even point in hopes that they could eventually make a second purchase, and that's when we really, really make the profit. So, retention matters a lot here. So, like, with our brand, acquisition was kind of out of the picture. It never really did well for us. So, we went straight into organic. We're talking about SEO. We're talking about other retention stuff, but most importantly, acquisition through organic, like not pay stuff. And my background as an influencer really allowed me to understand how to make good converting content and understanding how do I leverage content to drive people to my site. And so when TikTok really came out, no brand was using it to create content. There were brands didn't excel on it because they didn't understand it. And but because I think my background as an influencer helped me understand how to make content as a brand or at least from my understanding what a brand content should look like because I I was the one making those for brands. We were able to get on TikTok really fast and within a month it became 
it increased 30% of our revenue on top of everything else that we're doing, purely just from TikTok organic. And we, and at that point, we didn't spend a single cent on influencers or on marketing on that platform. So it was a pivot point because that video, the, one of the videos that popped off that like, I don't know, like 2 million views or something, that honestly like put us on, like we're on the map now. Like we were now getting more followers, we're getting more attention. Our hashtag right now has 20 million views and none of that was paid, 20 million views. And it's just kept growing because once you create this framework to make content, and I create a system that allows people to make more content for us. So we now have a content machine on TikTok that's just continuously running. We have contributors with like UGCs making content for us that we can use. And that's how we're able to grow really fast is I built a system to make sure that we're always getting content out there. I'm sure that satisfied your curiosity um, when you were talking about the three minute thing, having to jump into to a brand new platform like TikTok. And, you know, talking about TikTok, the platform is, has just continued to grow and it's become a really great place for, for brands to, to generate revenue and generate brand awareness. How do you see that platform like evolving? Do you see it as something that can still be useful for brands as time goes on? Or do you think um, brands are going to start to face more challenges? You know, with Instagram, when it started out, it was like a wide ocean, you know, and Facebook ads, because no one had really dived into it. But as more people spend time in the platform, and as more people kind of build up knowledge on how to use that platform to generate revenue, how do you see that impacting like brand growth over there? Or do you see like a limit based off of how it is? Or do you think the algorithm maybe leans into a different way there? I'm extremely bullish on TikTok. I've been one of the biggest advocates for it. I told everyone to jump on it last year. And it was kind of like screaming in a room that no one really listened to. And in like the past four months, everyone's like, holy shit, you got to get on TikTok if you're a brand. And I'm like, yeah, I told you. And I'll tell you why. TikTok is fundamentally different than any other platform I've seen in the eight, nine years I've been in the space. Fundamentally different. Why? Any other social media platform, in order for you to get any kind of exposure for your content, it requires you to have an audience. Sure, you can have a hashtag on Instagram. That's only going to get you like an extra handful of people looking at your post. You know, hashtag doesn't really mean much on Instagram anymore because of how saturated it is. But TikTok's algorithm and the people that goes onto TikTok are different. For one, the algorithm shows you content without you even needing to follow the, con- like the account. So it's a, if you're interested algorithm, it creates a feed for you instead of the people that you follow. Yes, Instagram's feed is not chronological order anymore, and it is somewhat like based on an algorithm to show you what you think, what they think you might like. TikTok's feed is entirely full of people you don't follow, but TikTok knows you like based on your browsing behavior, and it gets smarter and smarter over time. So right off the bat, it's different. Like brand, what this means for brand is that instead of trying to climb an uphill battle, trying to acquire customers or acquire followers and then acquire, I mean, create content. You can just focus on creating content because TikTok will kind of be acquiring those followers for you in a way. Like we were able to grow, we were able to double our Instagram followers on TikTok in a fourth of the time because we didn't have to spend time and energy trying to grow the follower base, like trying really hard to do it. TikTok was showing us to the right people that they think and they know for a good certainty that they will follow us and engage with our content. So right off the bat, we can grow really fast. But the second thing that's really important is that the user behavior on TikTok, it's drastically different than the user behavior on any social media platform. 
when you two are going on Instagram or on TikTok, or sorry, Instagram and Twitter, you're most likely getting like frustrated just looking at brands. Like you you see a brand, you're like, I want to scroll the other. I, I don't want to look at it. Like I don't want to be sold to because you guys are in the space. But even consumers nowadays are getting smarter. They're like, you know what? I know an ad. Brands pay money to make an ad. I don't really want to look at ad. Like I don't want to be vulnerable. I'm not just a product. You know, like I, I don't want I don't want to get into that. Like naturally, we're just kind of scrolling past ads now more and more. We're so desensitized from it. But once you're on TikTok, and I'm not sure if you guys use TikTok or not, I, I spend at least like 15, 20 minutes a day on there. But when I open the TikTok app, my mind changes. Like the way that I perceive things just change. Open the app, I'm open to learn. And everyone else is doing that. And why content on TikTok that are educational and informative are naturally more high engaging because people want to learn. Some examples, I learned how to cook like several dishes on TikTok because I was on my feet and they're like, this is how you can make the best chicken masala. I'm like, oh shit, I really want my chicken masala. And then um, they're like, oh, this is like a life hack for you to save more money on your taxes. I'm like, oh yeah, I want to save more money on my taxes. So like, it's always like content on TikTok, a majority of them, if you start like really focusing on type of content, you're noticing a lot of them are trying to teach you something. Like the hook of each TikTok video is always like, this is what I'm going to show you in this video that you didn't know before. It's always that format 80% of the time. Just go on your feet. It's, all, it's always like that. And so in a way, people come onto that platform literally trying to absorb information as much as they can. Like when you go on Twitter and you go on Instagram, it's a lot of mindless browsing, right? You just go on there. You're like, yeah, my fan posted a picture in Kyle. I'm going to go like it, yada, yada, yada. On TikTok, it's a different behavior. Like our way of approaching content and digesting content just changed immediately. And that opportunity presents to brands, meaning that if you're able to create informative content around your brand and your product and teaching your consumer something and giving that really the raw behind the scene narrative, you're actually able to engage with your audience without spending money first and foremost, but without also sounding like a brand. Like TikTok is where you can be very authentic with your customers. It's raw, it's unfiltered, Yes, it's edited to have, like, nicer transitions, but we don't have, like, backlights. We don't have, like, airbrush. Like, you know, we don't do any of the refinement. It's raw because that's what people want to see. Yeah, I think, you know, TikTok is very intentional, too. And so when, you, when you're making the content, it's almost like you ask yourself, okay, how can I add value to anyone who's going to watch this video? Which aligns with what you were saying that, like, whereas Twitter, you just, oh, F it. I'm just going to send this tweet. I'm feeling it. I'm just going to send it out. So I was making our own TikToks. I was making about 10 a week for our own account at Trend. And at the beginning, it would take me, like, you know, 40 minutes to edit a video. And that was just using the TikTok editor while I learned the ropes. But then we just started using the TikTok editor. And once you get the hang of it, all you have to make sure is that whoever's watching it is learning something. And then before we knew it, you know, most of our creators, so TikTok beat the traffic that our SEO couldn't do in years. And then just TikTok beat it in like a month. So that, mm -hmm. that was super mind blowing. So it's awesome to see you having success there and sharing your story on, on how you've been able to do that and continue to scale it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I love how you position that as like it's a platform to learn. Um, if anyone from the TikTok marketing team is listening out there, I think that's a great way to position the product versus all the other social media platforms that are out there as well. And so I know we've talked a little bit about TikTok and, and some of the other projects that you've done also. As we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast over here, I'd love to learn. You've worked on so many brands. You said you love starting new ones and doing that kind of stuff. 
what are the three favorite like brands that you've uh, you've worked on and built and why? Um, like any individual projects, even the Shopify course or anything like that. Um, I, I'd love to kind of hear that. Favorite project. Uh, one will be 50, which is the second clothing brand I built. The premise of 50 was that it was a passion project, really. It wasn't meant to make money, but it was a clothing brand focusing on saving sheltered animals. So a fifth of all the proceeds from each order goes towards Best Friends Animal Society, which is an organization that I, I've been a member of and I wanted to support. So I created that company to really help them out and like, you know, making merchandise around animals, cute graphics. So that was a passion project, honestly. It didn't make a lot of money compared to like everything else that we're doing now, but that was fun. Like that was memorable. And I honestly learned a lot from there. Uh, I guess like second would be teaching. I, I love teaching. I love doing talks. That's why I do a lot of podcasts. Like whenever I do podcasts, I don't have anything to sell. I just love teaching because my philosophy has always been that the, the more people know about something, the better everything else becomes. I've never been scared of sharing secrets because if a secret is the only thing that is keeping my business afloat, then I'm standing on really weak ground. My belief is that if I'm able to teach people how to do something properly, then the entire ecosystem will benefit from it. For example, there's really quick example is that people, there's a lot of people that do bad e-commerce. They, you know, start a store and they just don't ship items. They do poor customer support. They do poor marketing. And the customer experience is sour. They're bitter now. And then they see every other brand in the ecosystem to be the bad guys too. So they're like, I'm never shopping on, on these type of stores again. So by teaching people how to properly do something, it actually benefits everyone else in the ecosystem if they all follow it. So I just love teaching. That's just like my second thing. I guess number three would most likely be the beauty brand that I'm working on right now, just because of how challenging it is. Uh, I'm gonna tell you firsthand that I don't wear eyelashes. <laughs> I, I, it's not something that I put on every single morning and be like, yeah, let's, let's, let's fucking go. Let's start my day on some eyelashes. But as a product designer, like that's who I am at heart. That's really what allows me to create stuff in categories I've never been in before is that I'm able to break things down into different elements and redesign it from the ground up. So even if I were to make, let's say, like a very extreme example, like a bra, you know, like if I were to make a bra for a woman, I will break a, I will break a bra down and be able to create a product that I think may be objectively better based on the material science that I'm using, based on the fitment I'm using. So I'm kind of like looking at it from an engineer perspective rather than from a user perspective. Like now, of course, I'm going to do a lot of user testing during the entire process. But as a designer, I'm actually able to create things outside of the things that I actually use because I'm able to break things down effectively. So those are, I would say like the three things because, and the reason for those, because it was so challenging. I've never really done it before. And it was just refreshing to be able to validate the idea and the whole theory I just told you about that. I'm able to break things down and create things I've never used before. So it was a good way to validate the whole idea. Well, you might have your next brand idea over there based off of this <laughs> podcast. Um, but, you know, we're coming over to the end over here of the podcast. I know we've learned a lot from you, uh, Jason. I don't have any more questions, so I'll pass it over to Ramon. If, if there's anything else you want to touch on and then we can wrap things up over here. <laughs> no, really, no. I think, um, you know, the goal of this podcast is to give actionable insight. And I think Jason's philosophy and how he thinks about empowering, you know, the whole ecosystem deliver just that valuable insights for everyone listening. So thank you, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was awesome having you, Jason. Um, so as we kind of wrap up over here, 
I always kind of like to ask as, as the last question is, uh, you know, what's next for you and, and what's next for Wong House? And uh, if you don't mind, if you want to share a little bit more about where people can find out more about all of the brands and, and things that you're working on as well. Uh, next thing, the next things I want to do is expanding the, the philosophy of Wong House, which is the way for me to create and work on a lot of brands, but instead of creating them myself, is most likely start a fund to invest in early stage founders um, with great ideas that just don't really have the traction or, or the directions. There's actually a lot of people that have amazing product ideas because they're real life users. They're like, hey, you know what? I have a solution for it. Like I've met parents, like 40, 50 year old people who have great ideas, but they just, they just don't know how to do it because they lack the capital or they lack the direction. They don't understand social media, but they have great product that I think if they're able to bring it to market will be multi-million dollars. So I wanted to create a fund to support founders like that, to support founders like me eight years ago who didn't have that resources and had to fail so many times, lose millions of dollars, making dumb mistakes that could easily be avoided now. So I guess starting a fund will be that. Second thing right after that is probably do a food show. I, I love traveling. It's actually my passion project. If, if I were to not have to worry about money anymore, I'll, I'll most likely travel and have like a show of my own. But own the show so I don't have to have the pressure to make money. Like I don't want to make money from it. So I'll probably do that like in the next few years if I'm able to like get things off the ground and like I don't have to worry about money anymore. But until then, still got to work. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be uh, on the lookout for the show in, in a few years. Fingers crossed on that. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been awesome. I know I learned a lot from here and I'm, I'm sure our audience did as well you did, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time on the DTC pod. Wait, and, and before we go, Jay, real quick, Jason, where can people keep up with you? Oh, um, Instagram at Pug, P-U-G. Awesome. awesome. Perfect. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. Of course.